Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work with me. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. So a quick additional episode to drop into your timeline uh, right now. It's just, uh, I ran a Twitter spaces. I've run two of them in the last week. First one started disastrously badly because I was on mute for the first four minutes. I had this really extensive intro that no one heard. Um, And the second one I just ran on Thursday this week with Scott Galloway. So Scott Galloway if you're interested in marketing or technology, then you'll know that Scott Galloway is one of the most lucid and provocative people talking about those things. And I was, he, opportunism just goes to show. Someone said, how did you get Scott Galloway? Because uh, he's sort of a, a fantastic guest. And as he says, COVID's been very good to him. He's he's sort of been in the news a lot. I got him because um, he he does his own podcast called Pivot. And he's a Twitter stockholder. And I heard him say that he wanted to try out a Twitter Spaces. And I emailed him there and then. And he replied on the uh, the, the the following Monday. So um, so just an illustration uh, that, you know, you've you got to try your luck on those things. Anyway, so we have a discussion. It's around a 40-minute discussion. At one point, I was getting a lot of people pinging, asking to join the conversation Difficulty I found from the first one I did last week is that people can end up saying random things. Uh, you know, t- someone comes along and tries to pitch their wellness company or someone. I, I got someone today who's pinging me saying, I'd love to ask Scott what he thinks about the um, the shootings in Atlanta. I was like, I get it. It's a big, serious issue. That's just not what we're talking about right now. You know, I'm not going to ask him about Biden's 1.9 billion. I'm just not going to ask those things. It's not the theme we're talking about. And so uh, I did bring one speaker to the floor. That was Lindsay Patterson, who uh, is a senior person at a a big marketing agency, WPP. But so you'll hear her joining along the way. And she she asks uh, a, a great question there. Really good discussion. I think a lot of these things are up for debate and discussion. I think Scott generally errs on the side of believing that offices have got a right, really important role. It, it, it probably more than anything, he talks a lot about how actually we're all playing game theory and we're all trying to work out to navigate our own way. So, you know, there's a lot of things that probably I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, they would meet with New Work Manifesto seal of approval in the sense that, you know, he talks about 
in your 20s and 30s, you want to work as hard as possible. You want to be in the office to have as much face time. And it's, I guess it's a candid and Machiavellian, sort of candid take on the way that we work and how we can get the best from the office. Anyway, brilliant discussion. I'm so delighted I managed to record it because they don't make that easy, let me tell you. And one of the weird consequences of Twitter spaces being this sort of virtual chat room where people are babbling away and chatting away and they can request and uh, little things sort of ping on your screen is that you will hear along the way little bleeps. And that's, you've just got to imagine... I'm not listening to a podcast. I'm listening to a live chat room and it's given me these little bleeps of little things happening. You can't mute them. You can't take them away. So I'm, I'm not going to cry necessarily about it. So uh, here it is. Here's my Twitter spaces discussion with the uh, New York Stern University business professor, Scott Galloway. And he's got a, a book out that I've enjoyed listening to in the, the last uh, few days called Post-Corona. One of the best things he talks about, actually, in that, before I jump into the discussion, he says, we're in, you know, you might recognise some of these. He says that human beings don't note the passage of time, they note change. And that's why, paradoxically, it can feel like there's been no change in our domestic scenario. And then in the world of work, there's been a phenomenal amount of change. And it's sort of this, this paradoxical thing that we notice change, not time, which I thought was a really timely reminder of like the the situation we're in so here's my discussion with scott galloway so uh we're just gonna wait for people to join i i actually ran one of these last week um one of these twitter spaces last week and <clears throat> i mean it was it was broadly fantastic there's some really good conversation um these really good dialogue and i i think we're gonna have a bit of fun today the one thing i would say is that probably my main learning from doing this last week is that I was on mute for the first four minutes. And, um, you know, in hindsight, the, the, the problem was this. It was that what you can do uh, just to help you navigate your way around what we're looking at here, um, you've got this weird selection of emojis that you can use at the bottom of the screen. I mean, if, if you take a look, there's the hundred, there's the fist, there's the peace sign, and there's the waving hand, and then there's the tears. Who chose that selection of emojis? I really don't know. Anyway, I opened last week. I was on mute for four minutes. Some asshat kept throwing up the hundred emoji. I thought I was, I thought I was on a rich vein of form. I thought I was killing it, and then suddenly I looked down. I saw I was on mute. So, um, so anyway, the the uh, Scott's joined us. Hello, good evening, good afternoon, Scott. Uh, hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Good, good to have you here. Um, yeah, so the, the way that this generally works is I think we're keeping in the spirit of the original Twitter spirit that we're going to try rather than do these things never ending and meandering on for hours, we're going to try and do it short and focused. So it's the equivalent of a 140 characters. It's just going to be a, a quick 30 minute one. Um, and I'm de delighted that Scott's going to be here. So, look, if I, I know that some people generally in these things start requesting um, to speak straight away. By all means, you know, you can do that later on. But if you've got something you really intently want to say, if you can tweet it at me, then I'll get a, a better sense. Last week, I started giving the microphone to people who were selling office furniture, people who were trying to hawk their stuff. It, it just it wasn't ideal. If you tweet what you're interested in saying, it probably will help us do a better conversation. So uh, hello. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Where are you today? I'm in Delray Beach, Florida. Nice. And uh, have you been there for most of the, the lockdown period? 
Yeah, I split time between uh, Soho, New York. I teach at NYU, and my uh, family is in a small town just south of Palm Beach called Delray. And since COVID, I used to commute to New York the Sunday to Thursday night on planes a lot. And now I'm maybe once every six to eight weeks I'm in New York. So it's been transformative for me, a lot of time at home. It's interesting because a lot of us have sort of started calls and conversations in this time asking where people are. And I just wonder if it, like an obsession with location like that is going to feel uh, a bit irrelevant. There's, there's a new story in the UK today, which is the, the BBC, the sort of the main broadcaster, have announced they're moving a whole heap of jobs out of London. And it just seems like such a wasted opportunity. The best thing they could have said is that, you know, we exist for uh, the, the new generation. We're going to make half of all of our jobs completely remote. Instead, they've sort of, they've done this strange thing of moving a few of them to different cities. And it seems like a decision from a previous era. Do you think we're going to think less about sort of specific location as we go into things? I think it's situational. So you mentioned young people. I find that, generally speaking, young people want to be in an office. They want to, they want to find mentorship. They want to find mates. One in three marriages and relationships begin at work. And also, they're just not getting around it. Proximity to headquarters is correlated to career acceleration. And some of the advice I give to young people is before you start collecting dogs and spouses, put on a suit, put on a pantsuit, whatever it is, and get into headquarters. Because if you are, generally speaking, there's three people qualified for every promotion. And the person who usually gets it is the one who has the strongest relationship with the person making that decision. And relationships are a function of three dimensions and proximity. So I think that there'll be some unintended consequences of the remote work, specifically the cohort that will incur probably the, the most negative impact will be women. We've already seen female labor participation in the workforce regress to where it was in the 80s. Because when, when uh, households decide to move further away from the office and they decide, okay, one of us needs to stay at home, it's almost always the woman. And also the shutdown in schools uh, has largely, or the dispersion to remote learning for children, that responsibility. When we say remote learning, we're basically saying that now mom has to sit next to your eight-year-old and teach. And so we've had really uh, uh, a significant I would call negative externality around women in the workforce, around remote work. And the other thing, I sort of be careful what you wish for. There's a lot of positives around remote work and a lot of articles about how the world's going to change. But if your job can be moved to Denver or Dover, it can be moved to Delhi. We're, we're going to see a lot of tech companies use this as a means of outsourcing more and more of kind of not, not white collar or blue collar, but kind of purple collar, the stuff in between will be outsourced and we're going to see more and more situations like uber where there are seven million drivers making minimum wage and then you know fourteen thousand people at hq making a lot more than that i think it's i think it's going to have some unintended consequences that aren't as optimistic as as uh we're hoping for the point you make there about sort of that wanting to be in headquarters it does raise the sort of the the subtext of a lot of what's gone on and you mentioned specifically the fact that women have been pushed out of the workforce and have, have really sort of representation gender representation has definitely suffered it, it does sort of raise that question that a few companies have already started talking about that maybe 
em- employees will be prohibited from going to the office more than one day a week, two days a week, three days a week to sort of prevent that hack where someone can go into the office, look like eager Steve and suddenly find himself on a fast track to promotion. And even the, the mere thought of that seems to be either engineering work to avoid office politics or setting us up for just a new era of politics. And and even this time when we're all meant to be feeling optimistic about the transformation this sets up, it immediately makes us think, oh, wow, this is just going to be worse or more complicated. Is that right? Do you think that? So a lot there. So when we talk about office politics um, through the lens of kind of a critical filter and office politics are to a certain extent, no different than socializing your dog or your children. And that is if you have great EQ skills and the ability to establish connection, the the ability to create alliances, not offend people to get things done. I mean, you know, as usual, I always digress to stories about me, but my my first job out of college was at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, my uh, I forget what you call it, uh, square mate or my um, um, uh, the person I sat next to. He stayed at Morgan Stanley for twenty five years. And by most uh, by most metrics, people look at my career and think I've been more successful because I've started companies that have gone on to do well. We both kind of ended up in the same place economically, and he with a lot less stress and a lot less up and down or ups and downs. And the reason why is because, or one of the reasons I had to take a riskier route and achieve more what I'll call relative success to get to the same place is I didn't have the skill set to be successful in a large organization. We have a tendency to romanticize entrepreneurship and diminish just how powerful the greatest wealth generator in the history of mankind, and that is the Western European and the U.S. organization, a large corporation. Kids come to my office hours. They never want to talk about brand strategy or digital marketing, what I teach. They want to talk about their careers. And they say, well, I got an offer from Google or an offer on Amazon, but me and a few of our buddies are thinking about starting a company. And my general response is, don't be an idiot. Go to work for Amazon. Because on a risk-adjusted basis, if you have the skills to navigate uh, to, to navigate the politics of an organization, these are incredible platforms. And I'm not saying don't pursue entrepreneurship, but everyone assumes that because you're an entrepreneur, you're more talented. The reason I'm an entrepreneur is I didn't have the skill to navigate the politics or the socialization of large organizations. And if you have those skills, I mean, I think a lot of that was because uh, I was an only child, but we can do the therapy session later, but you... I think that, you know, that we look at office politics as, as a negative. Well, it's no more a negative than socialization or getting your kids to play with other kids so they develop skills and how to build teams and know when to lead, know when to follow, know when to get out of the no one to get out of the way. If you look at Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, actually Facebook, Google, and Amazon, they're actually increasing their square footage in urban centers like London. And New York, because young people want to be in urban centers and they want to they want to go to lunch together and they want to herd. Uh, and the majority of the reporting around this, because it's done through the lens or the filter of someone of my uh, generation or someone in their 30s or 40s, the office is seen as a negative, whereas I think younger people, really talented younger people actually see the, the office as a as a positive. So I don't. I think that you're going to see a net uh, gross destruction in demand for commercial office space of, I think, 20 to 30 percent, because the reality is 
well, most of us are going to return to the office. We're just going to return to it two to three days a week as opposed to five. And if that results in a destruction of 20 to 30% of what is a $12 trillion asset class in the U.S., you're talking about two to $3 trillion dispersing from REITs and office owners to residential. And as a result, you're seeing, you know, no one would have expected residential prices to hit all-time highs in the midst of a pandemic, but that's what they've done. Lumber prices have doubled. Uh, anyways, I'll stop there, but I, I'm fascinated, yeah. but I'll call the second order effects here. Yeah, absolutely. But the really intriguing thing is, to some extent, the, the notions of workplace culture or workplace perks, benefits, have been defined, even for people outside the tech category, have been defined by these sort of big, iconic brands that have really used sort of workplace culture as this marketing vehicle. And it does beg the question going forward, firstly, what's their take going on this going to be? How can the big tech firms differentiate themselves from the 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 also runs? Could it be that people say you will have a dedicated desk and that's our perk or that you'll have a you can book an enclosed office for a certain time a week? How, how are they going to try and differentiate themselves? And, and sort of separate themselves from largely now it's going to be if, if any firm can offer you the opportunity to work from home, it's, it's much harder to get a differentiation there, I'd have thought, in the benefits and perks. It's an interesting point. So I have an online education startup called Section 4, and we had this incredibly talented young man who was doing really well. We liked him. I know he liked us. And he came into my office and said, I'm leaving for Google. And I was just flummoxed. Oh my God, what, why? I just have, I'm just shocked. And he said, I love it here. I'm making good money here. And he described his job at Google and he was going to go sell AdWords into Chili's or something. I'm like, God, that sounds awful. And he said, yeah, and may, this might've been him just trying to make me feel better. But I said, be honest with me, why did you leave? And he goes, I'm working at home. I'm bored. I'm not meeting anybody. And he goes, I want, they're really smart. They show, Google shows recruit, takes recruits and shows them. Uh, Google's most, um, I think their strongest recruiting tool is their cafeteria. And they create this sort of Xanadu happy hour, legitimate happy hour vibe where you, you come in, you go, to, you go get an amazing meal, you're with all these people, you go see Malcolm Gladwell speak at five, and then they have happy hour with, they taste different IPAs. I mean, it's basically kind of summer camp, or it's a cross between MIT summer camp and The Bachelor. And he just said, I want more socialization in my life. And if I'm going to work 12 hours a day, I want socialization injected into my life. So um, these companies, their secret sauce is they continue to attract the best kind of young human capital. And people that age want a herd. And so uh, it'll be interesting, but they can afford... They can afford to build big campuses and in centers. Also, the death of cities has been greatly exaggerated. Everyone's saying how people are going to move out of cities, and they talk about San Francisco. San Francisco is just like American healthcare. It's expensive but bad. But people aren't leaving San Francisco to go to Modesto or Lubbock. They're leaving San Francisco to go to another city, Austin or Miami. So I think cities are still going to be incredibly attractive and actually see a rebound. We're already seeing a rebound in real estate prices in New York. Yeah, although if if there's, there's some estimates that say, I think Morgan Stanley estimated that around a, a quarter of the demand for commercial real estate will disappear. And it's hard to see residential real estate filling that with the same yield on it. So, you know, 
I would guess that, firstly, I think there's a thrilling opportunity. If we think sort of system thinking, the one thing that we've really lost from big cities in the last decade, 20 years, is artists, you know. And cities, cultures really thrive when you've got these sort of subcultures living and, and countercultures. So maybe for the first time we're going to have artists back in city centres. But it, I struggle to see how real estate prices are going to stay at the same level um, for commercial or residential when you've got such a, a an inflow of, of new real estate. It, it's interesting, you know, one of the things that's often said is that all of the disruption we've seen in retail has been when 15, 16, 17% of retail went online. And if 20%, 25% of commercial real estate navigates and, uh, and migrates from uh, from being for firms into residential, the, the sort of ripple effect of that is surely going to be far bigger than we, we even can begin to imagine right now. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Bruce. I think you don't want to be, if you want to talk to people in denial, get a group of theater owners, commercial real estate owners, and doctors in a room. It, commercial real estate, I, I just think it's going to get hit so hard because a lot of commercial real estate is leveraged 70 80%. And if they get a 10 20 30% decline, you're just going to see a lot of tier two commercial real estate just go away. Mm. Uh, residential, we're seeing record prices. And so in New York, the high end's been coming down for a long time. The opportunity you're talking about that's exciting is New York has kind of become almost like, well, you're in the UK. I remember going into, I think it was the Mayfair district or, and basically there was no one living there. It was all incredibly wealthy people who were using these $15 million townhouses as their summer homes. And the kind of the community had died. If New York real estate comes down we're losing a lot of our um, baby boomer billionaires in the city, mostly for tax reasons. Uh, they're sitting on unrealized gains, and they can move to Florida or Texas and avoid taxes when they when they when they realize those gains. But yeah, I think you're going to see a new generation of worker move into the cities because if a, a studio in Brooklyn is no longer three thousand dollars, but is two thousand. That's not the worst thing in the world, uh, and I think London will probably experience the same shedding of skin. And hopefully see, like you said, the artisan class have an opportunity to move back in. One of the, one of the things that's really intriguing for me is that it's almost you know, narrative bias. We sort of we can't help but look at the moment we're in in time, thinking, oh, right, that's all the change behind us. And um, I'm just intrigued at the moment we're still holding on to the idea that creativity and innovation needs to be in the room together. And so we're all ha holding on to this notion that work will be in some way hybrid or, you know, whether it's hybrid where we go into the office two or three days a week or whether we go into the office one week a month or some version of that. But we're still hanging on to these ideas that were hybrid. I saw something really fascinating, though, that J.J. Abrams, um, a couple of weeks ago, he was, he was interviewed somewhere. And he said his first instinct when it came to sort of working in lockdown was that creativity, you couldn't do it unless you're in the room together. And the, the next thing he said is that because that wasn't an option, we've realized that it's very, it's perfectly easy once you've, you've developed the muscle. It's perfectly easy for you to do creativity in a different way. And it has the added benefit of making the creative process more diverse because you can have someone dialing in from Bogota, you can have someone dialing in from, from Europe or, or whatever. And so I just wonder if at the moment we're still looking at this thinking, how do we manage the way we were working previously? Um, and we're not necessarily yet challenging ourselves to say, look, some of these things that we're considering that, you know, big cities 
uh, we're, we're considering that that's going to persist. Um, and I just wonder if these these whole levels of change that we're not fully embracing yet. Uh, that sounds that sounds right. I don't. There's more efficiencies. Uh, there's more opportunities. You're right to bring in different creative resources and feel more comfortable with people patching in. But there is something. I mean, for example, Goldman Sachs, uh, the CEO, David Solomon, has said people need to be back in the office. And he was kind of derided as not getting and not getting it and being a boomer. Famously one of the worst cultures in the world, though, right? I you think Goldman's people got... People dropped down dead working at Goldman. Yeah. So, look, I, I, I think Goldman is easy to dunk on. I would argue that their reputation as a career accelerant, I mean, there's two sides of the contract. You've got to kind of give up your life. Um, uh, actually, I think the banker that dropped dead was at Merrill Lynch. But anyways, the, uh, I think Goldman, um, I started Morgan Stanley. I started investment bank. I worked my ass off. Uh, it was awful. Uh, gave up my life for two years and I would do it again because I got paid a lot of money and I got a chance to accelerate my career. So these organizations will, I mean, they're easy targets, but they'll continue to attract people who at a young age are very ambitious, want to work around the best. And I also think their cultures have, I can't believe I'm defending Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they've also recognized for economic reasons that they need to carve out more accommodation for not only women, but women who decide to procreate. Uh, and I, I've actually recently been on a bunch of calls with Goldman, and I've been struck by how many, how many women are now part of the senior ranks, which is wonderful. But look, I, this I think is what Goldman, Goldman do, man. They bring they bring really clever, articulate, opinionated people like you in side the yeah. tent. So that yeah. you know, Adam Grant did something on his podcast a couple of years ago where he he did this hero piece on that CEO talking about oh what a dude he's a DJ he's a secret DJ it's complete vanity piece. But they just bring people like you, intelligent, articulate people in the in the tent because you don't piss on them then. And I just I I, I you know. Anyone who looks at it, the notion that you can work that environment and have a stable career as a parent is a fallacy. And they don't even want it. The idea that bringing women in, Scott, man, you've been sold, you're being sold a hoax. I'm sure of it. Uh, so I appreciate your viewpoint. Um, my wife worked there for five years, so I have some insight into it um, and worked there for five years with two kids under the age of five. Um, look, it, it, there's two sides to the trade. And, I, and y- your point is a really good one. And that is, these people are really smart. And they know that the best thing to, to assuage or kind of take the wind out of the sails or, or disarm a critic is they're all kind of the, they're all incredibly high EQ people. And they reach out or their PR people reach out and say, hey, Scott, would you like to have dinner with the head, the CEO of Uber and hear his vision? Like, no, I don't want to have dinner with him. And, and they said, well, why? And says, because I don't want to, uh, I'm sure I'll like him and I'll stop speaking my mind. And the exact same thing happened to Goldman. I said that David Solomon, DJ Saul, was an awful DJ and he was a worse fiduciary trying to, trying to foist the unicorn feces that, was, that is WeWork on people. And this was back when they were going to take WeWork public. And so I hear from David's PR person, who's a former Obama administration, mucking muck, saying, you know, congratulations, David would like to have lunch with you. And I'm like, I have no interest in having lunch with David Solomon. And then what happens? He emails me and says, I live around the corner from you. Let's grab breakfast. And I agree. And I meet this the guy. This is like a like Russian him. operation. This is how they got Giuliani. Well, and, and this is, and I meet with the guy 
And and no surprise, and this is I'm you know confirming your point. He's a really likable, smart, nice guy. And I find myself when I write about Goldman. But let me be clear: I think Goldman are total fucking hypocrites if they if they take those mendacious Fox, better known as Robin Hood, public. And I think they need to stop talking about volatility in the market and making big, self-aggrandizing speeches about volatility in the markets while they. They take Robin Hood public. So I like to think I'm still trying to be open and honest. But to your point, when you meet these people, they're very likable. And you, and you, you find yourself checking back when you write. So I, I agree with you. But I've also, I, I've been co-opted. I've been co-opted by Goldman, but at least I'm sort of aware of it. Yeah, um, I, I find of all the things that Leaf's convincing, I find they talk about changing culture really unconvincing. But the, he, projecting him as a DJ is just like this extraordinary. It's, it's just like the worst undercover cop. But uh, yeah, fair. <laughs> fair. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just, um, just. I, I guess you know. I mean, I'm intrigued because along the way here, you often talk about sort of a great dispersion and things are going to be moved around. At heart, you sort of saying that. Actually, you know, for all the talk of hybrid work, work will probably remain in offices for younger people in a stage of learning. And then we might look at something beyond that. But it sounds like a gentle evolution in the way that you're conceiving it. Yeah, well, we have a tendency. The easiest way to process information is zero at once. And most most of the dialogue around work from home is we're either going to all go all remote or we're going to go back to the way things used to be. And the reality is neither is true. You're going to have people who decide. Companies, colleagues, superiors are going to decide. Look, if you're if you want to if you're commuting an hour each way and you want to commute an hour each way, two days a week instead of five, that's fine. If you're, you know, hopefully the opportunity is if if you're taking care of if you're a caregiver for a parent or a child, more flexibility. I mean, there's some real opportunities here. But you, to your point, we're just going to. I don't see how we don't experience net destruction or gross destruction of demand of office space by 20 to 30 percent minimum. And like all digitization, digitization of any sector, any category usually usually, um, results in kind of the same effect. I actually think the premier real estate in London and New York, whether it's Midtown or Brooklyn or I don't know what the hot kind of cool central business district, I think those rents go up because people say, well, we no longer need 30,000 or, you know, 300,000 square feet, we need 80 or 100. So we're going to make it really nice. And we're going to be in the best area. And we're going to move back in. Yeah, yeah, we're going to move back in from Canary Wharf, or I don't know what kind of a second tier areas into the hot business. Because if people are going to come into the office, we want to make it a wonderful experience, because it's more about socialization and aspiration and branding as much as it is about human proximity. So I think tier one, the top stuff, and this happens across every industry when digitization takes hold. They do better. It's the tier two and the tier three that just get swept off the deck. Uh, so I think you're going to see the, the the best real estate actually go up in value. But tier tier two, it, look what's happened with malls. And well, look what Amazon did to malls. The best malls are still fine. If you go to Short Hills or if you go to Costa Mesa, those malls are hanging tough. They're fine. And their sales per square foot are still fine. The tier two and tier three miles just going away. The interesting thing for me is that, you know, along the way here, we've talked about culture in different companies and the one th- and, and we've talked about sort of the use of office. And the one thing that I've observed, I, I dial into people who 
talk me through their work day and they say i'm on back-to-back video calls i'm doing all these meetings i'm plugged into all of this and to some extent whether you're doing that in an office or whether you're doing that home it's kind of irrelevant it's just a crazy way of working and this there's, there's a few people challenging that. A few of the remote-only firms, people yeah. base camp and automatic, they talk about, look, meetings are a last resort in their culture. And I recognize that there's something special about engineering and software firms, software products that can do that. But um, the, just when you chat to people who are on back-to-back video calls, then what people like Cal Newport are saying really strikes a chord with me. Cal Newport, sort of uh, provocateur, really. He's a, he's a professor at Georgetown University, computer science professor. But he says that we've, irrespective of where you're doing the work, it's irrelevant. At the moment, we've obsessed ourselves with staying connected to each other on video calls on emails at the moment and it's creating this version of work that's anxious and itchy we're just constantly checking our devices for fear of of missing something and it almost feels that unless we fundamentally re-engineer all of that the the stuff about location and offices is actually really important it has a really big bearing on people's well-being but it might be the we're missing the subplot that we really need to rewire the way that we're doing our jobs right now. I think that, I think that's right. I also think that anyone who's on zoom eight hours a day, there, there is something missing when I've been starting businesses my whole career. And I used to, I'm a big fan of, I would grab three or four people three or four times a day, just run over to the desk and we jump into a conference room and attack a problem or go through I always like to go through all the key players. How's this person doing? How's this person doing? And then we go in and go, what's going on with this client? And a lot of it just couldn't, the idea of trying to schedule a Zoom call and get everyone on and logged in, it's just not as efficient. And going back to Goldman, if you're trading convertible bonds in a market that is going volatile or you're trying to figure out the impact of a 200% surge in GameStop, having traders across the desk from each other there's just a velocity of exchange of ideas, even reading the person's face, screaming out to somebody, price the price the tenure. There is, we, are, we have definitely lost something. We gain things, but we're going to find that certain industries are going to need to be back in the office. It's going to be very interesting. We're going to be writing case studies around this for years. And I think Cal's work is fascinating. I love reading his work. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Was, I had a Brilliant discussion yesterday with Robin Dunbar, who you might know sort of Dunbar's number. He came up with this idea that human beings are able, only able to trust 150 people. But the majority huh. of his work is sort of a lifetime's work. Um, fascinating stuff. But he talks about the that we have this magical and invisible effect on each other when we're around each other. So you can most visibly witness it in when people are in choirs together or they dance together or, you know, armies in the past have marched together and the endorphin levels in their body go up and we get it. He really interestingly, he said, we get it when we laugh together and when we have storytelling. So that sense that whether you've watched a conference presentation or someone talking and you sort of feel captivated by it, there, there is some science in, in that, that helps. But he said, we just are, are unable able to get anything like these effects through a screen. And I guess, you know, if we're thinking about a team talk of a coach of a sports team, we know that to get anywhere near the emotion through a screen as they would in real life. And so I, I just wonder if that's the missing ingredients that we're, because we can't see it and because we can't measure it, we're missing the fact that human beings do seem to have this magical effect on each other. There's almost like this aura that comes off us that we can't actually compute at the moment. Uh, look, I think that's right. And great, true greatness 
uh, is in the agency of others. And I was even thinking I was doing um, reviews for the people who work at Section 4. And it was just, everything was just more muted um, doing it over Zoom. And and there's just, a, there's just as, as a species, we are happiest when we are in motion and surrounded by others. And we can't, we can't really do either of those things over Zoom. So it's not only, I mean, where I talk about productivity and efficiency and creativity, I find that work is just less joyous. My career has exploded. My, my career was invented for a pandemic. I couldn't have orchestrated this any better. <laughs> Um, but the reality is it's just not as joyful. It's not as I give, you know, it's great. I can do two talks a day. I did Verizon this morning. I'll do Salesforce tonight. I'm killing it from an economic standpoint, from an influence standpoint, but there's nothing like being on a stage and then getting off stage and talking to people and seeing the reaction and reading the room. I am totally unable to read. the room. I have no idea how this is going, Bruce. I have yeah. absolutely no idea. The strange one is that Robin Dunbar was telling me about sort of touch hunger to some extent that, you know, it, and touch in a platonic way, touching the arm of your male colleague. You know, I'm not sort of uh, getting into, into anything. But one of the things that I, I think we're also starved of is that sort of that um, sense of being examined or connecting someone, of just holding someone's eye line and looking into someone's eyes. You know, whether you're in a board meeting and someone looks at you or you're in a presentation and the, and you look at someone and we're just completely robbed of that sense of exactly like you said there, knowing how it's going. Because you look in someone's eye and they they look at you like you're dying here or this is you're killing it here. And I think some of those things, because we've seen that video technology can do what appears to be 85% of the job. I think we're missing some of those moments of connection that have probably got far more value to us than we realize. Do you have dogs, Bruce? I don't know. Okay. So as mammals, we want, and we crave and we're happiest. I have two dogs and they just sleep on top of each other. And then if one of them, and then if, and then where they're the second place they're happiest is when I watch TV at night and they both jump on and lie on me. My kids, when I watch TV with my kids, when I feel most gratified and happiest and like I have a place in the earth is when they kind of unconsciously flip their leg over and just like, you know, rest their head on my shoulder as we're watching, you know, as we're watching WandaVision. And I, unfortunately, and this is a tough topic, but because we've conflated affection with aggression or power moves or inappropriate behavior, and those are really legitimate concerns, We've taken, I think, a lot of what I'll call camaraderie or affection. I mean, other than a fist bump, it's just a very weird environment. And I used to, when I used to roam around the office, I would put my hand on someone's shoulder or I was, I wouldn't call myself affectionate, but I think that physical proximity and touch is really important. And I don't know how to thread the needle there, but I think we're definitely missing something. And as mammals, just instinctively, um, we, we crave proximity, we crave smell, and we crave touch. And if you think about the most rewarding things in life, they usually involve proximity to other people and what I'll call reaffirmation through affection or eye contact. And I think that played an important role at work. Unfortunately, it's just become such a, you know, I don't know, I don't have an answer for it, but I think we've unfortunately conflated affection with aggression because of some bad actors and mostly mostly male actors who lev or abuse their power 
But I do think we're missing that. And I think it's, it's kind of the tragedy of the modern work era. And, and you're a big Twitter stockholder. Is this your first experience of Twitter Spaces? It's the only reason I agreed to do this, Bruce, other than your reputation as a genius. I, I heard um, you say to Cara that you wanted to try it. And so yeah. I immediately crafted the email in the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's ex <laughs> that is 100% right. I'm a shareholder in Twitter. I think if Twitter commands a fraction of the space it occupies, its stock's going to go up. I've owned it for a year. But I'm addicted. I'm physically addicted to Twitter. Uh, and they've done a terrible job of, monetiz of monetizing that addiction and that community and that influence. They're starting to do better, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a shareholder and, and absolutely love Twitter. This is fun. Like, it's a fun space. It definitely, if, if they can navigate all of the complexities of trying to police it and you know the, the unexpected consequences of giving 200 million people access to this, but it seems like a, a good use of the, the follow graph that people have got. Well, for a long time, we bought into this bullshit notion that these platforms would be impossible to moderate. They threw up their arms and said, oh, it would be impossible to moderate. Well, the reality is we, we canceled one guy's account and a third of misinformation on election interference went away that moment. We're not talking about the realm of the, of the, of the possible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. And big tech platforms have, have fomented this entirely false narrative that it would be impossible to narrate these platforms. That is bullshit. They've just decided they'd rather not modulate them because they end up having to modulate the content that is most divisive and most profitable for them. If you and I started tweeting anti-vax content, it would attract a ton of heat, a ton of comments, and more Nissan ads. So they are absolutely, they absolutely have the technology and the ability to moderate and modulate these platforms on Twitter, there's something like 80 accounts responsible for a disproportionate amount of misinformation, whether it's anti-vax, health, election interference. But they've just decided, no, no, we'll pretend it's impossible such that we can sell more Nissan ads. Mm. And I think that these platforms are coming to the conclusion and store investors, they're letting your platform be weaponized, uh, that being a, a handmade to sedition is not good for shareholder value. So I'm hopeful that the immunities are kicking in. And I think when you look at platforms like Snap and Pinterest, they're trying to starch their hat wide. I think Apple's trying to do the same thing. I think Facebook and Google are pretty much irredeemable at this point, but I think there's still hope for Twitter to come to the light. I see the good in them. They just need to come to the good side of the force. <laughs> How are you doing for time? Have you got time to take a couple of questions from people? Or you, I know we're over what you initially said. Anything for you, Bruce, despite the fact I, had, I know nothing about you. Good. Okay, we, that's all the better. Uh, look, I've brought Lindsay Patterson to the floor. Lindsay's <laughs> a hot shot in the world of marketing. Lindsay, ask us something. Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. I did a – I feel like I'm, I'm slightly blushing, actually, because – Scott retweeted uh, me saying I was looking forward to this talk. It's my first Twitter Spaces talk. And actually, so uh, Scott is one of my professional crushes. Come on, with, cut to it. Let's along with Byron Shaw. No, Sharp. no, go on. Go on, <laughs> Go on, uh, So I was interested. Um, I've discovered that I'm a big hugger. And don't be terrified, Bruce, to your point about this. But this whole touching, the, the missing people in real life, I think is really interesting. Today, I went to the office for a real treat. Uh, and it felt like that. So I definitely think there will be some kind of hybrid because I think the concept of I was interested to, to listen and hear someone talk about the misnomer of work-life balance and the premise being 
there's no such thing as work-life balance because that assumes that you you do your work in order to then live your life. And to me, work is part of my life. I love my job and that's all one thing. What I think is different is a, is a work-family balance. So my question to both of you is, is that a uh, first world problem, a white collar concept, or even worse, a marketing concept. But I, you know, how do we begin to, should we be separating or thinking about the separation? And I think the separation is about family, because if you're, as you said, Scott, the mum trying to work and homeschool, it's really about work and family, whereas work-life balance or work-life integration is totally different. Thank you. Uh, uh, Bruce, I, that was for both of us. Do you want to go first? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this is one of the intriguing things. I, I spoke to a uh, hedge fund the other day, and they told me something that I've heard from a few people over the course of the last few months, which is, Scott, we're all looking forward to June the 21st here, where, where we're allowed to go on the rampage and normal civilization will resume. And so, um, but they've said uh, June 21st, um, while you might be planning a, a, to, to go inside a nightclub for the first time in 10 years, we actually want you in the office today. And the, the really interesting thing from it is that you realise that there is a gendered element to this. The, the generally, you know, women who've had the, the hardest time, have got the domestic responsibilities, have actually found that homeschooling aside, there's been a degree of ability to actually get their balance to, to decide that work doesn't have to be this frenetic commute, this 74 minute commute every day that they can get some balance and trying to, I was on this thing last week and someone said, well, look, of course the patriarchy wants people back in the office because it works very well for the patriarchy. So I think there is a diversity element to this. And I think anyone who says, you know, family balance, then hybrid working seems to be a really important part or, or allowing people to say where they're going to work seems to be a really important part of that consideration. It's almost like you can't have diversity and inclusion without some very significant concession to changing the way that we're working in my mind. Uh, so first off, thanks for that question. And I would say that I hope that you continue to uh, hug people. I just don't think there's any professional or personal way of, of instilling confidence in people than hugging them. So I, I hope you continue to have that confidence, even, even in a workplace, the, uh, in terms of work-life balance. So I, I do a, a survey every year of my class and I say, all right, where do you expect to be economically? And almost all of them, and it's, it's, it's selection bias because these are MBA students, they don't expect to be in the top 10% economically. They expect to be in the top 1%. And what I tell them is, I get that, that's fine, but that requires a sober conversation. And the sober conversation, the first component of that is, work-life balance for you will be a myth. I just don't buy it. I, I don't know anyone who is really successful economically unless they're genius talented and you should assume you're not that person who doesn't spend a good 20 years of doing nothing but working i don't i'm not saying it was the right thing to do i don't remember anything but work from the age of 22 to 45 it cost me my hair it cost me my wife and quite frankly it was worth it um, if, if so this notion of work-life balance you just have to have an honest conversation around what you mean or what your expectations are, because it's, it's a trade-off. Now, now, we have to propagate the species. We have to have secure, loving households. We like to think that if we offer people balance, that everything will just work out and it'll be good for shareholder value. We have to have a sober conversation that says, if we want a productive society, if we want kids 
that are productive humans. If we want kids to grow up to be good citizens, good leaders, good parents themselves, we have to make accommodations. Women have largely closed the wage gap. Under the age of 30, women with college degrees have closed the wage gap with their, with their male counterparts. Where they go to 83 cents on the dollar is when they decide to use their ovaries and have kids. So until societies decide to make an investment, either through tax credits or companies make forward-leaning investments and say, not only are we going to tolerate women having kids, because that's kind of what they do now. They say, okay, we'll give you eight weeks for brain development, postpartum. That's not, that's not an investment. Those are table stakes. Until corporations and society decide to do what some Northern European countries have done and say, we are going to make forward-leaning, costly investments and the health of the next generation by ensuring women can maintain their career trajectories, making sure they maintain their salaries, giving them a year paid maternity leave. We're just not going to get there. So I think a sober conversation around work-life balance and where you're, what your expectations are. And also as the child of a single immigrant mother, I saw what was available to my parents when they split up. Neither of them had high school educations. Both were talented. My dad went on to make $60,000 a year as a salesman for ITT because he's a charming man with a Scottish accent. My mom was smarter and harder working and her entire professional opportunities were to be a travel agent or a secretary. And we made $11,000 a year. And so until corporate America and government say, we have to make forward leading investments in the species, we're just not gonna get there because part of this woke bullshit is thinking that we're all the same. No, we're not. My wife can hear my kid shuffling his sheets at four in the morning and she'll go, he's coming in in five, four, three, and I don't hear anything. So we have to recognize that, that, that one part or half the species plays a more important role in the formative years and there's no getting around it. If we want to maintain women in the workforce, it's going to cost us money. There's no, there's no like we talk a big game that it'll all work out. No, it isn't. It's going to be expensive and it'll be worth it. More from my discussion with Scott Galloway after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now back to my Twitter spaces discussion with Scott Galloway. Uh, Just quickly, because I guess what you're saying, Scott, is thank you, Lindsay, by the way. Um, I guess what you're saying is that we are we're, we're sort of gradually edging that there might be a bit of regulation that's going to sort of edge us somewhere something there. I saw a report yesterday saying that the big opportunity of the moment now is that we need to switch our obsession from people's working hours to people's working outputs. Right, it's obvious, self-evident stuff. But one of the consequences of that might be that um, the firms say we want fewer fixed costs and we're just going to hire far more freelancers. And, and so if you play that out, there is the chance for small, nimble firms to have like this freelance revolution where they're just based on these variable costs, where they're bringing in people for specific tasks. And that, for me, seems like a big opportunity where I guess you're, to some extent, mired down in this idea that if we're going to change things, and that by its very nature would be very diverse and inclusive. But, but I guess... To some extent, you're mired down in how can we just edge the current system marginally better. And I guess you've got a pessimistic take whether we even can. Do you think there's a scope for moving from fixed to variable costs for, for employees? Yeah, I, look, fixed to variable is a, a, different, a different conversation. It's, it's oftentimes fixed to variable is Latin for not providing people with health care or figuring out a way to clock them out, or giving them software such that we can circumvent minimum wage laws, such as Uber. And by the way, shout out to the UK for saying no to that bullshit and deciding that those employees are that, they're employees. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I think, I don't, I don't buy, I'm not one of these persons around fate. I don't think the world is what it is. I think the world is what we make of it. But going back to the conversation around work-life balance and closing the wage gap when women decide to have children. We need more working mothers on boards of companies. I serve on the board of a lot of public and private companies. And when it's all white dudes, we have a tendency to go with the white dude as CEO who has the tendency to hire more white dudes in senior positions. And none of us think of ourselves as bigoted or racist, but we're a tribal species. And so I, I believe what Germany has done, Germany has decided that boards have to have worker and union representation. And what do you know? Their middle class has just done a lot better over the last 30 years than the rest of Western Europe and the U.S. Until we put more working mothers on the boards of companies, this is just going to be a lot of woke speak. So I think there are certain concrete steps we can take. If you aren't paying women with children the same as you know, dudes without kids, then we're going to, you know, figure out taxation, make you more liable to lawsuits, whatever it might be. But I think there's a series of concrete steps we can take to affect this as opposed to just watching MSNBC and listening to the BBC over and over and over. Got it. But on one hand there, you're saying woke speak and, and almost, well, very pejoratively. And then the next, you're saying we need to pay people equally. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with where that put uh, what what's woke about specifically when we when it comes to work what's the wokeness that you're taking issue with well i okay so i think we we talk about paternity leave we assume that men and women are the same and they're not women shoulder a disproportionate amount of the burden at home and to think that to think that that's going to change i think ignores basic elements of our species we're just going to have to make investments. I think, I think woke, woke culture 
this has decided a long time ago that men and women are exactly the same and to not acknowledge our differences is to be politically incorrect or sexist. So I think a lot of what we do on the far left ends up shooting, you know, we end up, I, I, I think on the left, we end, up, we end up more focused on being right than being effective. And because I think a lot of the solutions probably around closing the wage gap feel sexist or weird or, or, or controversial. But anyways, uh, it probably, it's probably another talk show. Yeah. Scott, I just want to thank you for, for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate Look, as, a, as an experiment, it was, it was a fabulous one. But uh, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm really grateful for your time. Is there, is there anything you want to say in, pass, in parting? Uh, no, I wish everyone the best. I hope everyone gets vaccinated. I think this is a, an exciting uh, time to rethink our lives. I think the profound opportunity coming out of COVID is to invest uh, for the cementing and repair of, of uh, key relationships. And I'm excited about 20, or hopeful, I should say, about 2021. And I'm planning to move to London in fall of 2022. So uh, hopefully I'll get right? a chance yeah, my, my, my parents, dad was born in Glasgow, my mom in London, and I've always wanted to live in the UK, and we're going we're gonna to try and make the move in fall of oh, 2020, 2022. So anyways, hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you and some of these other people. Sensational. Thank you for joining us. Thank you uh, to the audience as well. I really appreciate uh, everyone jo joining, and uh, it was good. Thank you to the team who built Twitter Spaces. Cheers, Thanks, everyone. Bruce. Thank you to Scott. As you heard me mention, if you've persisted this far, is that I've got an interview coming up with Robin Dunbar. So Robin Dunbar is the guy who's famous for this Dunbar's number, the idea that we can only trust 150 people. And the immediate thing in the world of social media is that you're probably thinking, 150 people, I've got more Facebook friends than that. I've got more WhatsApp contacts than that. I've got more people on the, my phone than that. He's going to describe precisely what the the relevance of 150 is brilliant discussion. Uh, Robin, as, as I discussed there with Scott, Robin's got a lot of ideas that are very timely right now. And uh, he was in discussion for his, his book that's just come out called friends. So I'm going to release that one next week. Thank you so much for, for joining. I do run a, a newsletter on workplace culture and you'll find that uh, if you go to eat, sleep, work, repeat.com and uh, you can join sort of thousands of other people signing up to receive that. I've been Bruce Taisley. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.